from APM, American Public Media. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. A generation ago, if you walked into an American classroom, you'd likely find a veteran teacher who had been on the job for 15 years or more. Today, you're more likely to find a brand new teacher, someone who's been on the job for a year or less. Experts call this the greening of the teaching force. It's driven in part by the fact that there's been a huge increase in the number of teachers over the last 30 years, but also teachers are much more likely to quit today, resulting in a huge demand each year for new teachers. Our guest, Richard Ingersoll, studies the work of teaching and the status of teaching as a profession. He's on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, but he started his career as a high school teacher. He talked with American Radio Works correspondent Emily Hanford for a documentary she's working on about teacher preparation. Ingersoll says one of the problems with teaching in the United States is that it's traditionally been seen as a job that pretty much anyone with a knack for being with kids can do with just a little bit of training. But teaching is actually very complex work. High school teaching was the most difficult thing I've ever done. I mean, I'm now a college professor, and I'm not denigrating that, but believe me, the most difficult work I ever did, the work that takes the most skill and expertise was high school teaching. Is it true, then, that smarter people make better teachers? If we could recruit all kinds of really smart people into teaching, would we have better teachers? Well, that's a debate. Now, certainly we have some research that shows if you have you know, higher verbal scores on the SAT or something like that, then your students tend to score higher. And, of course, you know, this is maybe part of one of the assumptions behind Teach for America. If we could simply recruit in these very bright undergraduates from top colleges and universities, they would make excellent teachers. And, you know, there might be said something to said for that. I, I'm a little unclear. To me, that whether you have, have high SATs or not doesn't necessarily make you a good teacher because, because my own view and my own experience and what the data show is that Besides sort of knowing the content and the subject and being smart, you also need to know the how of it. This is a huge source of debate. I mean, we have a school of thought out there that the word pedagogy is a bad word, that schools of education are a waste of time, that teacher certification is unnecessary, that in its extreme, this viewpoint argues that if you know the subject then you can be a school teacher. If you have a bachelor's degree in history or English or biology, you could teach social studies or English or science. And my own view is that that's, that is so simplistic and naive that you could have a PhD in math, but getting across equations and algebra to ninth graders is something else. Hmm. So it may be true that smarter people uh, would make better teachers, but it's not true that all smart people are going to be good teachers. Yes, that's certainly true. And even if this were the key, I mean, say one of the keys, one of the many keys to getting better teaching in the United States was recruiting smarter people. We need a really huge number of really smart people. Just how big is the teaching profession in this country? Well, Data from Census Bureau now tell us that teaching is the largest occupation in the nation. You know, there's something like four million elementary secondary teachers. One of the next largest occupation, nursing, is you know, is half the size of teaching. So it's a gigantic, it's a mass occupation because it's a mass industry. I mean, everyone must go to school. They're not only entitled to, it's mandatory. And 
And so, you know, I, I mean, I've seen these people argue that what we need is, in essence, saints. They may not use that term. They say, you know, we want these people that are caring and they can go in these tough schools and they can work miracles. Well, just how many saints are there in the population? I mean, there's something so naive about it. I've seen another school of thought, which is that, well, good teachers are born, they're not made. And we need to sort of identify people that are just, you know, they're born being good at explaining things and then recruit them into teaching. Again, this is so naive that, you know, we're talking about 4 million people. We're talking about an occupation in which over 200,000 newcomers come in every year. And furthermore, my own view is that, yes, certain people might be born with um, the potential to be good at teaching. You know, there is, there is some innate talents there that some of us have and some don't. But I also am under the view that you can teach people how to teach, that there's a series of discrete skills and they can be passed on. So maybe they're really, really great teachers are, in essence, people who are born and then get really good training. But what we need in this country are a lot of, of good teachers. Yes, we need a lot of good teachers. And, of course, this gets back to the other end of things, that you know, we could, we could raise the bar and narrow the gate to get in. You know, we could require higher SAT scores and, uh, you know, higher college GPAs and things like this. We could, we could do that, but it's not going to work. We're not going to entice the best and the brightest in there unless the rewards are there. In other words, you know, Singapore, you have to be in the top of your college class to become a teacher. But it's also a very well-respected, well-paid line of work. And that's not the case in the U.S., so, you know, when I left t high school teaching after a few years and then became a college professor, I got my Ph.D., my starting salary as a beginning new college professor at University of Georgia was over twice as much as I was ever paid as a high school teacher. So now college professors might think that's great, but the point is you're not going to, we're not going to lure the best and the brightest in there without the rewards. One of the reasons that we, that we need so many teachers in this country is that lots of teachers quit. What do we know about how long teachers are staying in the classroom and teacher turnover in the United States? Well, I do a lot of research on this, and, and here's what we know. Turnover is relatively high in teaching. It varies across types of teachers. It's particularly high in the early years, and it's concentrated in particular types of schools. There's a wide range of variation across types of schools over the, the departure of teachers. So why is teacher turnover so high? Well, you know, the big answer is the characteristics of the job and the school, how well teachers are treated, the character of leadership in the schools. You know, salaries is one issue, but salaries is not the main issue here, and that's important. But because it's a large occupation, if you, if you consider just raising all the teachers in the country, just suppose you wanted to, you're the president, you want to raise all their salaries by, say, $1,000 a year, we could do the math here. It's, it's, a really, it's a really big figure. And that's important to recognize because salaries is not the main, you know, they're relatively low compared to many occupations and professions, but, but that's not the main uh, source of the high turnover rates here. It comes down to issues like, um, how much voice and say do the teachers in the building have over the decisions that affect their jobs? Schools are often 
highly top-down centralized workplaces. Teachers usually are never given the voice that, say, professionals like professors are given. As a professor, I have a whole lot of say in what I teach, how I teach it, the hiring of colleagues, the developmental programs, in building decisions. As a high school teacher, I had no say in any of those things. So that's an issue of management. Changing that wouldn't cost money. It would require sort of a sea change in the way we view this line of work. The fact that so many teachers are leaving, that there's so much turnover, right, that could be a good thing, right? It might mean that we're getting rid of the ones who aren't up for this job. So, so what do we know? Is it the, you know, quote unquote, bad teachers who are leaving and the good ones who are staying? You know, you ask a great question, because when we talk about the topic of turnover of teachers, or whether it's employee turnover, you know, Everyone agrees that, well, you'd never get nor you'd ever want 100% retention in any occupation, organization, or industry, that you're going to have some. And indeed, having some employee turnover is good. You, you want fresh blood coming in. Hopefully, you want your lower performers, your people that, who aren't really fitting in to leave, to move on to greener pastures. I mean, you know, the good firm, there's a great deal of research on employee turnover that takes place in, in business schools and management departments. And, you know, the, ex, the general accepted wisdom is that the good firm both promotes and benefits from some degree of employee turnover. That's fine. There's also a general acceptance, though, is that high levels of employee turnover are not cost-free. And there's all kinds of different costs and consequences that researchers look at and we can think about. I mean, there's the quantitative costs of simply, of simply having to recruit and replace large number of employees every year. And, you know, a lot of different researchers have tried to figure out it. what's the formula here. I mean, one accepted formula is it costs about 20% of an annual uh, salary of an employee to replace them. And we've now had some research in education trying to figure out what's the cost to a state of, you know, X level of teacher turnover a year. So, so we have financial costs, but we have, I mean, what's interesting to me is to think about all the non-financial, perhaps less quantifiable costs and consequences of the high turnover rates of teaching of teachers from schools. So, I mean, what does it mean to a to a student in in eighth grade to have had three math teachers in the same year? I mean, what does it mean to the remaining faculty if each and every year they're losing over a fifth of their full-time colleagues? You know, either quitting teaching or going to other schools, either other schools in the district or other schools in, in, in other districts or other states. I mean, what does it mean to the ability of a math department to offer a coherent math curriculum? Let's suppose this is a large suburban high school or urban high school, and you have this, you know, you've worked out a whole new curriculum, and you've gotten some sponsored money to come in and, and make a really good math curriculum and to have several key people leave. What does it mean to a foundation to have invested millions of dollars in improving some urban schools, and from the beginning they've gotten on board a number of key teachers in key schools, and then those teachers leave. The new teachers that come in don't know about the foundation, the reform, have no investment in it, and may not care. In other words, there's all kinds of consequences and costs that have not been recognized 
in this industry, in education, of, of having high levels of employee turnover. And those, to me, are the interesting questions we need to investigate. When you were a high school teacher, what was the system or systems in place where you taught to help you get better on the job? There weren't any. There weren't any. When I taught, I never heard the word induction or mentoring or support, any of those things. You, you, you got the job. The principal um, gave you the keys to your classroom, gave you a pat in the back, and that was it. You were on your own. It's what we call the sink or swim model. And uh, some systems are maybe even proud. It's, it's kind of a trial by fire. They figure, well, you know, if you can make it, then, boy, you're, you're cut out for teaching. And if you don't, well, you're not. Of course, the downside of that is a lot don't swim. They do sink. And, and this, is, this leads to the high uh, attrition rates and turnover rates of beginning teachers. But no, I, you, know, you were very much on your own. And what I would have to do is after school, I'd have to hunt out some veteran teacher and say, look, you know, I just had this problem with these kids or these parents. Can I run it past you and maybe you can give me some advice? So you sort of had to do that on your own. And, um, uh, and in fact, the, the norms generally were that if you couldn't figure it out on your own, that meant you weren't really very good. That if you had discipline problems, for instance, that meant that you really didn't have control of your classroom, that the, the system had a whole lot of sort of built-in victim blaming in it. And, of course, this leads to high turnover rates also. Mm. So we hear over and over again that teachers are the most important factor that schools control uh, when it, you know, the most important in-school factor when it comes to how much kids learn. Just how, what's your view on just how important teachers or teaching is when it comes to kids getting a good education? There's no question that teachers are important. And each of us could go through our own personal biography and remember teachers that you know, dramatically changed our lives. I mean, most of us can probably do that. It might have been in elementary school, it might have been in secondary school or in college. So teachers are very important, but what's happened is it's become a double, recognizing that has become a double-edged sword where we've now kind of said, okay, they're important, and by gum, we're going we're gonna to hold them accountable to that. I mean, behind No Child Left Behind Act, in a way, is the assumption that we're going to require these teachers to solve poverty. I mean, that's a little simplistic, but think of it. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to hold these schools accountable to see that all these students, particularly from poor, disadvantaged backgrounds, are all going to become proficient. Now, that's, that's a very large, it's a laudable goal, but that's a very large demand to put on teachers. I mean, can teachers go into poor inner-city schools and take poor kids and basically transform them and make them have, you know, successful lives. That's, that's a wonderful notion, but what a huge burden expectation. I mean, if anything, we've, we've shifted more and more of the responsibility of raising the next generation from parents, from communities, from churches, onto schools and specifically onto teachers. I mean, schools now are responsible for all this. You know, if my, if my students don't pass that test, somehow it's my fault as a teacher. And under the new, uh, these new teacher accountability mechanisms, my pay could be cut. I mean, believe me, as a college professor, if I have a student fail, that's not my fault. No one, no one comes to me and says, well, Dr. Ingersoll, you've done a bad job. No, no. The assumption is it's the student's fault. Elementary, secondary teaching, we're going in an opposite direction. 
more and more we're holding these teachers accountable for all kinds of things which they don't have much control over. That was education professor Richard Ingersoll at the University of Pennsylvania. Our correspondent Emily Hanford interviewed him for an upcoming documentary about teacher education and training. You can find more podcasts about the state of the teaching profession, including recent podcasts with Dana Goldstein, author of The Teaching Wars, and Elizabeth Green, who wrote a book called Building a Better Teacher. You can find those at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can also find Emily's 2010 documentary, Testing Teachers, about the fight over the role of teachers and the politics of teacher evaluation. And while you're at the website, browse our archive of documentary projects. We have more than 100 of them. And let us know what you think of our coverage, AmericanRadioWorks.org. We are on Facebook at American.RadioWorks, and we're on Twitter at AM RadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from Lumina Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.